This podcast is brought to you by True Voice. We're bringing you automated win, loss, and no decision analysis at scale so you can find and fix seller blind spots in near real time. With automated customer feedback from every opportunity, you'll uncover what buyers truly care about when purchasing, what your competitors are doing to adapt, and how the experience with your sales reps impact win rates. With this new insight, your sellers automatically receive the right science-backed sales training from Corporate Visions based on their individual strengths and weaknesses. It's time to get more from your win-loss analysis. True Voice moves you from just-in-case to just-in-time coaching and training. Visit us at www.truevoice.io and start winning more today. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by True Voice. I'm your host, Ryan Quelder. Before the pandemic, face-to-face sales meetings prevailed. They were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. They were the gold standard. But then everything changed. Suddenly, buyer and seller interactions only, only occurred on in virtual settings. Sellers had to adjust their skills to ensure they they were building trust, communicating effectively, and differentiating in this kind of new digital brave new world, right? And as the world slowly opens up, many sellers are very eager to get back to -to face-to-face selling, back to that gold standard. But getting everyone in the same room can still be difficult. Uh, Not only... uh, do we not have the pandemic anymore or the pandemic issues to do contend with? We also have hybrid and location and co-located and remote workers. It's becoming more and more difficult to get all stakeholders into a room. And while many buyers now expect and maybe even prefer a digital buying experience, we have to seriously consider the modality of our sales presentations and sales interactions. So here's the big question that we're going to explore today. What if we could peek under the human skull, crack it open, take a look to understand how buyers actually want to be sold to today? How do they want to receive the help from the sellers? Well, maybe we we can't crack it open and look under the skull, but what if we could do something very similar? And today, we have an incredible guest on the show, Dr. Carmen Simon, Chief of Science here at Corporate Visions. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ryan, and uh, thank you, everyone. I'm excited to talk to you about the uh, brain because everybody in your audience has one. And uh, typically when I say that, people giggle because sometimes you don't see the evidence of it, but um, it's true. We we have one, and um, it's very satisfying to understand how the brain works because once you do, then you know what to do to appeal to your buyers better. So that's super kind to make the assumption that I have a brain. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and I'm glad it's being recorded and shared because other people that have interacted may have may question that. Having said that, before we get into this conversation about the brain and modalities of sales presentations, our listeners want to hear about you. Who who is this Dr. Carmen Simon? Who is this person? Tell us about you. I am the uh, chief science officer at Corporate Visions, and uh, I have a healthy addiction toward uh, studying the brain. And um, I study the brain in um, some facets that enable me to peek underneath the skull, as uh, as you said, without cracking it open. 
I can share a visual. And even for those people who are only listening to this and uh, not watching a screen, you can still picture this. So as people come to our neuroscience experiments, they have the opportunity to wear an EEG cap. And that EEG cap enables us to place some electrodes on the scalp and record the brain waves that get generated in reaction to stimulation. The stimulation that we typically study ranges from virtual presentations like you see him watching uh, in here. So imagine he's in front of a computer and um, he's listening to a sales pitch that is delivered via Zoom. And um, also on his chest are some electrodes that enable us to capture an electrocardiogram signal. So that's an ECG. And um, on his wrist and fingers is a device that's called a GSR, and that stands for galvanic skin response. What happens anytime you watch something on TV or on a computer or anywhere in reality, and you get excited about it or you have a reaction to it, it doesn't always have to be excitement your skin changes, or I should say the conductivity of your skin changes. And that's what um, we capture with that device. And there's a fourth one that we use, an eye tracker. Sometimes we place it right on the computer. Sometimes we ask people to wear the actual eye tracking devices. And the reason why you want to use that signal is because typically you look to where you think. So there's a connection between visual attention and cognition. And you want to use a combination of signals during neuroscience experiments because if you only relied on one or sometimes two, it doesn't put you in the position to make solid inferences. So for instance, if I was only using an eye tracking device and I knew that you're looking more in the upper left corner versus the lower right corner, I still couldn't tell, are you looking there more intensely because you're intrigued or because you're confused? You'll be the same with the GSR. If I only use the GSR, and you had a reaction to something, I couldn't tell if that was positive or if that was negative. So make sure that anytime you hear some stats or you hear some practical guidelines from neuroscience, anything, usually there's more than one signal involved, especially if you're not deeply into the brain, like an fMRI machine can take a picture of your brain very, very fast and it goes very deeply. With the electrodes, we can only stay on the surface of the scalp. Our corporate clients are not allowing us to surgically insert them. But what the advantage is of the EEG signal versus an fMRI is that the EEG signal is instant. It's millisecond. Whereas by the time the scanner takes a picture of your brain in an fMRI condition, for instance, a second or more will have elapsed. And that could be an energy and an, an, an eternity in terms of uh, cognitive uh, processes and affective processes. So we have some advantages by staying on the surface with the EEG. So if you only had to use one signal, it would be the EEG cap. It would be the ECG signal, and then they go progressively down because from then on, you can't make inferences unless you have a combination. I'll pause here for a moment because I'm sure you'll have some uh, some reactions or perhaps some questions to this. Well, if we had that hooked up, you'd see my skin reacting. That That's terribly interesting. Uh, in fact, um, I, I do. So I want to pause, though, and back up. Um, I have two, one is related to what you were just sharing. And then another one is how did I want to get into, how did you even get into this? I mean, what was the driving force for you? But first, first, I want to ask more about this. So what I'm hearing you say is the, um, the quality of the research increases pretty substantially when you have multiple means of gathering data and cross-referencing. Am I, am I understanding? Exactly, exactly. Because then you can tell a little bit uh, more strongly what something means. Otherwise, this all just looks nice and fancy on the, on the surface. And 
the buyer, the listener to a, to this podcast or to a session like this wants to know some practical guidelines that, yeah, sure, you can hook up people to things, but what is it that this means to my business? What can I do as early as this afternoon after we're done talking to you? So you want to use multiple so you can make some uh, some inferences. And the, um, the draw toward this is the fact that thoughts and emotions are fast and fleeting. And the only time that you can ever capture the brain's raw reaction and the body's raw reaction to a stimulus is the millisecond that it happens. Anything else after that is reported memory, which quite often comes with its flaws. Like if you were to reflect on something that just happened to you, do you think you'd be able to recall that with 100% accuracy? I don't know. That's that's a great question. Probably not. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, usually we we reconstruct reality, and the more we bring back to uh, to mind a memory, the more that memory becomes malleable. So with each time that uh, you talk about it, some other elements get added and reinforced. Creeps into the conversation. Yes, yes. I remember reading a story, and it, it really touched me. It was talking about um, a father that had experienced uh, some really tragic circumstances during the war. And he never wanted to talk to uh, his family about those. And uh, he was uh, a memory expert. And he said, you know, the reason I'm keeping those so guarded is because I don't want them to be tampered with each time that I bring them forward. Wow. that That's an interesting way of looking at something that may have been traumatic, traumatic in somebody's life. What a fascinating thing. So I, I, the next question that I, that I have for you is more about you. Um, when did you realize that you had to, when you were compelled to studying the brain, when, when did this become a real passion for you? Because clearly you have passion around it. I used to work in an R&D department, in a research and de development department, and um, we would uh, receive a lot of vendors coming in and uh, they would be uh, pitching us with their uh, software applications. And I would listen to one and think, you know, this one is actually pretty good. And then the next one would come in and they would pitch their software platform. And I would think, hmm, this one is actually good as well. So you would have, you know, some companies schedule those vendor days. And then decisions are not made instantly. You have to then reconvene. And typically decisions are not individual. They're social within a large organization. So you have to talk to other people. And we are noticing then after 48 hours, after a week, or sometimes even a month, when we would come back and reflect on what just happened and what we heard from those vendors would, first of all, be different from person to person. Like what person A remembered was so different than what person B took away. And then because their presentations were so close to each other in meaning and design, we just forgot which who said what. And we tended to give credit to the more familiar stores. So as you're listening to this, already as a practical guideline, start reflecting on your content and wonder if somebody took my logo out and put somebody else's logo in, would this message still stand? Stand Because if it does and you're presenting and somebody else from a competitor presents as well, after a while, the business brain will not be able to say who was what unless you apply some um, some very critical uh, guidelines, which we can uh, we can talk about, especially in light of virtual versus face-to-face. Uh, -face. But that was my motivation to recognize that, indeed, if you want to differentiate yourself, you can't just abide by old methods of presenting a message. Something else has to be done, and it has to be done not based on opinion, but rather on science. 
and here we sit, which is a perfect segue into the study. So we, we got to get into this. Let's go. I'm super excited for this. You recently did a study on this very topic, right? The modalities, what's the impact? Um, tell us, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the study that you recent that we're going to be talking about today? Yes. With empirical research, you want to create some control and some treatment groups, and then you compare them against each other. And you have to maintain something constant and tweak only one small thing, because this is how you establish causality. So in this study, we kept the presentation the same across four modalities. Mm -hmm. And those four modalities were, we delivered the sales presentation face-to-face, -face, we delivered it virtually via Zoom, we delivered it in a hybrid format where somebody was with the seller in a face-to-face -face environment and somebody also from the buying group was joining via Zoom. And we also delivered over the phone because even in the age of advanced technology, the phone is not dead. You can still pick up the phone and call a customer and say, I have this to, uh, to excite you about. So let's, uh, let's go. So those four modalities is what we changed. The content was kept constant. We had a live presenter throughout all four, which meant that this person had to deliver the same presentation a hundred, uh, how much was it? It was 74 times. <laughs> because we had uh, 148 people participating. And those 148 participants were divided into pairs. And the mm. reason we divided them into pairs is because when we studied the hybrid modality, we had to have, to have one person from the pair face-to-face -face with the presenter, with the seller, and the other person joined via Zoom. Mm. And um, it was, uh, I, I'll pause here for a moment. You might have some questions about the, uh, the design, but this was, uh, this was interesting for us and intense because first of all, when I typically scan people's brains, I scan them one at a time. Here we scanned two people at the time. Typically we have participants watch a recorded stimulus. Like I was showing you in that picture, the person was just watching a Zoom call that was recorded. In this case, we had a live presenter and also typically we have maybe two, three experimental groups. This time we had four. Mm. So the experiment was really intense from multiple angles. That's a robust study. And uh, I'm curious, did you have the same presenter do all of the workshops or was it various presenters? No, remember, you can only tweak one thing, which for us was the modality. And uh, we, uh, we kept everything the same, which is why we hired an actor to deliver those 74 presentations because a trained actor would know to have the same gestures. Like right now I'm showing the hands when I say the same gestures. So if that had been part of his presentation, he would have done this the exact same way 74 times, regardless if he was even talking over the phone because he had to maintain his part constant as well. Okay. Okay. So I think, I think we're setting us up here. Did you have a hypothesis going yes. into this? What, what, what was the hypothesis going into this? What did you think? Well, you put it perfectly when you introduced the session, when you mentioned that the gold standard was face-to-face. -face, and mm -hmm. that's how people were used to presenting their software platforms. In this case, it was, by the way, a software platform that he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And we were used to face-to-face -to -face as a presenter and as a participant, as a buyer. You were typically attending these situations in the same room. Given that the pandemic had, had, had been going on for quite some time, my hypothesis was that out of the four modalities, surely the face-to-face -face would have been the best one. Mm. When I say the best one, from a scientific perspective, you have to define your terms. What is best? 
for us best, as I showed you and explained those four signals that we're using, we look for variables such as attention, and attention comes from both the EEG signal, and um, I look at it as attention across time, meaning mm -hmm. that once you get somebody's attention, you stay with them for a while. You can also mean visual attention that comes from the eye tracker device. We also look at cognitive workload to see if something is easier to understand or a little bit harder. Like for instance, if I had a message for you and kept it constant, would you understand it a little bit more uh, easily if we attended this face-to-face -face? or if I called you over the phone, would that make mm -hmm. it a little harder? We also look at fatigue because the brain is a human brain. It does get tired. Unlike the machine that can work over time, we do need to take some breaks. We also look at motivation, meaning that you're once you're in a stimulus, you are willing to stay with it and exert some effort toward it versus withdraw. Those are cognitive variables, by the way. And of course, um, in the cognition, we, we put the memory variable because after 48 hours, we test people's memory to see what they still retain. Memory is critical because it influences all decisions. Your customers will make decisions in your favor based on what they remember, not on what they forget. And we have two cognitive, two affective variables. So in addition to these cognitive, cognitive ones, we look at valence, meaning how much the brain and body enjoyed the experience. And we look at arousal, which in this context, it means how alert and awake the brain and the body feel during that experience. So that's what we mean by what's best. And the hypothesis was that given those variables that I just mentioned, cognitive and affective, face-to-face -face would come first. And um, we had a hunch that hybrid might not work so well. What would have been your hypothesis? Like if you're looking at those four modalities, is that something you would have predicted? Oh, totally. I would have guessed that hybrid actually was actually very effective. Ah. Uh, I, I would have guessed that simply because of the, um, the fact that we have so many hybrid workers and remote workers that people would maybe have adapted to this idea of partial in-person, partial remote. Um, I would have thought that. And I also would have come into absolutely finger down, face-to-face, -face, best best way to go. Absolutely. Uh, my father, growing up in my in, in business, my dad always used, he used to call those face-to-face -face meetings two things. He called it pressing flesh and belly button to belly button. And he, al <laughs> he always said, People like to be belly button to belly button. That's where, where business gets done. That was the, the mantra forever, wasn't it? I love the visual of that. And um, surprisingly, the belly button to belly button did not work as predicted in this case. However, here's the best news for, for all of you listening or watching this. The best news is that cognitively speaking, regarding those variables when it came to attention, cognitive workload, fatigue, motivation, and memory after the fact, we found no statistically significant differences between the four modalities. So if you ever don't have a choice over the modality, then I can share some practical guidelines that we used to create that presentation that the vendor delivered, the, uh, the seller, the actor delivered, to, to make sure that you have it, in which case you can go, you can, you can win regardless. However, the belly button to belly button didn't perform as well as the virtual belly button. Shocking. Okay, that is actually shocking to me. Help me help us understand why. We can we can get to some um, some suggestions as to why that may have been. So when we look at affective variables, the valence and the arousal, 
People seem to like the virtual medium and be more alert during that modality, much more so than the hybrid. The hybrid was at the opposite spectrum. The hybrid was negative valence, meaning that people did not care for it at all. And it was um, high arousal, meaning that not only do you not like something, but now you're kind of anxious, you're tense, you're nervous about it. So that's a state you don't want to maintain for too long. And I suspect the reason why that happens for for hybrid is because the two people in the pair, remember how one person was face-to-face, one person was joining virtually, do not have the same experience. And I wonder if there is a slight envy for each for the other person's role, because the moment that you're in a hybrid circumstance, you're reminded of contrast. Life is rough that way, by the way. Anytime that you are in pivotal moments, do you, re- you, you it's probably because you recognize some sharp contrast. Is that your experience as well? So the virtual person says, huh, I wish my belly button was actually in that face-to-face room. And perhaps the face-to-face person says, actually, I kind of could multitask maybe a little bit more now. I wish I was in that virtual space because that gives me a little bit more flexibility. So now that you have the contrast of the opposite, you're probably recognizing or being reminded of something that you might not have and perhaps you wish for. And that potentially impacts us negatively and gets us unfocused or defocused from the message and focused on the other people that are, that are experiencing what we're experiencing and wishing we had the other thing. Am I, is that right? Exactly. And I've heard from other academic papers that the hybrid condition has uh, been described as here or there. And from our neuroscience study, I would advocate that a hybrid is neither here nor there because the two brains do not become uh, synchronized. So here's a good point where we can talk about synchronization, which is uh, something that we implemented in the study. So because you have two pairs, now you can observe at what points and how frequently their brains synchronize, meaning that you're literally on the same wavelength with somebody else. Why would you even want to be on the same wavelength with anybody else, by the way? It's because other studies are confirming that when people's brains synchronize, that's connected to better cooperation, better collaboration. And that's usually part of the fact that you have some shared understanding of a content concept and you're paying attention to the same things. People's brains synchronize best during the virtual medium and did not synchronize as well during any variation that we had where there was a face-to-face component. <laughs> that was also surprising to me as well. That's shocking. I mean, truly it is. That's that's surprising to me. You know, and, and this may, may go back to the, one of the reasons why you had so many different measurement techniques when you were in the middle of your, of your research, in addition to the, uh, to the, what was the thing that goes on your head called again, the that's the EKG, EKG cap, the EKG cap, but you know, the eye tracker and also, you know, tracking the sensation of the skin, all of these work together to help you understand, you know, what's actually happening in the various modalities. So what are some other results? What are some other results of this study that really stand out to you? So let's think about now in terms of practical guidelines, things that you can do as early as you finish listening to this, because if there is some merits to all four modalities and all can give you good results, and by good results, I mean 74% of our population, regardless of modality, remembered what we wanted them to remember. We keep in mind this very humbling premise that the business brain will forget 90% of content after 48 hours. So what's the 10% that you want them to remember? 
74% of them took away the main message that we wanted them to take away. Even if they listened to the presentation over the phone, which to me is amazing because the presenter did have slides. So that was the only thing that differed in the phone modality. You could hear the same script, but you could not see the slides yet. People still remembered. So what did we do to that script and to that presentation to make that happen? First of all, we had a very clear 10% message and we didn't mention it just once. He mentioned it three times throughout a seven minute presentation, which is how long the entire stimulus was. And also for those who did see slides, they could have seen that message seven slots, seven times visually. So it takes that much repetition of a message in order for you to be in charge of what you want people to take away. So as you reflect on your own content, go back and look and say, first of all, ask the question, what do I want people to remember? And then say, how often do I come back to this message? And that's what puts you in a deliberate spot to make sure that people take away what you want them to take away. Otherwise, I remember being at a conference a while back and, um, the presenter talked about many things for about 45 minutes. And the only thing I could remember after 48 hours was the fact that uh, in Italy, he said, 17% of people believe they could text and have sex at the same time. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, I, that's a skill. That's a skill. I bet you, though, if you had asked the presenter, what do you hope people say after 48 hours around your presentation? That would not have been his pride and joy. Probably not. Probably not the 10% <laughs> message. Not the 10% message. So you really want to make sure that you're in control of that. Then what else did we do? We added some very concrete elements around some abstract ideas. For example, the uh, presentation was around a software platform that enables sellers to monitor their quota a lot better. If anybody listening to this is an Exactly fan, that was the company whose sales pitch we used, Exactly. And that's their name. And um, exactly can be fairly abstract in the sense of now you're talking about compensation, uh, sales, quota, all of those things are abstract concepts that you can't physically touch or feel in some way. We wrap those around some very concrete stories, like the presenter opened with some example from a homeowner that has a house for sale for a certain price. They hire a real estate agent that can sell it for a little bit less, but very fast. And there is some conflict between them. So they're getting to the idea of misalignment between entities, such as the homeowner and the real estate agent. To see the moment that I mentioned abstracts like compensation, sales, quotas, your brain can go on many paths. But if I say you have a house for sale, you can picture a house that's for sale. If I say homeowner, you can picture a homeowner. If I say real estate agent, you can picture that. That's why the phone condition performed also fairly well, because we were able to use words that were building mental pictures in people's brains. So as you're listening to this and you're looking at your own script and you're thinking, I have a pitch for somebody, look to see what's the, your ratio between something that is abstract and not available to the senses versus something that is con concrete and available to the senses. I'll pause here for a moment because you might have some questions or reactions. So, so that's so, so valuable. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned, you know, early in our conversation, and that was uh, people don't make decisions on the things that they forget. They make decisions on the things they remember. Yeah. And so getting pointed with the tempers, knowing the science, getting pointed with the 10% message and hammering, maybe hammering is the wrong word. Circling back, I think is how you, you put it or reconnecting to that 10% message often helps us control what they're going to remember. Is there anything else that, that we should be doing any other practical applications or tactics that we should employ to help 
drive home that that 10% message. Nothing wrong with hammering, by the way, because already you're putting a visual in our mind. So I okay. love that, uh, I love that word. The way that we had designed the 10% message was to have no more than three supporting points. And this is not because the brain cannot remember more than three items, but the brain is a very cognitively lazy organ. If we can get away with less, we, we will, just because we have to conserve energy. The brain is a fairly small organ in our, in our bodies, but it consumes a lot of our body energy and it has to justify its existence. And the way it does that is by looking for ways to conserve. And um, we discard very quickly things that uh, are difficult to focus on, things that would take a lot of energy to bring back to mind. So imagine that when you're sharing anything with your audiences, you hope that later on, which is in the future, which is where decisions happen, they will recall what you think is the essence. And it's better when the essence is compact and doesn't have a lot of branches because those don't take a lot of energy to be reactivated. Reactivating memories will come with some cognitive energy. So make sure that you have no more than three supporting points. Those supporting points have to be phrased in such a way that have um, they have cognitive ease. So the words that you use are not so difficult to bring to mind. I was just doing another study not too long ago and I was calling one of my branches um, linguistic complexity. And I was reflecting on those two words. It's like, those two words are kind of heavy. Like, can I come up with something that's a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> less intense, like perhaps uh, difficult words versus linguistic complexity. You see how some some things roll off the tongue a little bit uh, a little bit more easily. Uh, so cognitive ease would be one such practical uh, guideline. And also design, especially if you are using slides for your presentation, your 10% message in such a way that is distinct from any other slide. And the reason for that is because memory is often dependent on interference, meaning that if there's so many things that look like many other things, after a while, you will not know which one was which. But if you have some things that look like other things, and suddenly there is something that's distinct, like see right here, I have some gray scale kind of gears, but suddenly you see a red one. That one is more likely to, uh, to stand out in some way, but you still need the gray because how could you be distinct if you didn't have some similarity? Helps create that contrast. Yes, exactly. Contrast is one of the strongest persuasive techniques that you can ever use in any communication artifact you create, whether it's slides or no slides, because contrast is a shortcut to thinking. The moment that I'm seeing some items and something deviates from the pattern, then I'm recognizing that, oh, maybe I need to pay attention a bit extra to, uh, to that one. So that's why you need some distinctiveness. And if we were to put some scientific measures around that, how do you know something is distinct? I tend to use some percentages that um, experiments in um, measuring, for instance, the size of something or the color of something or the tone of something. The brain needs about a 40% distinction between one item to the next to recognize that something is indeed distinct, to perceive contrast. Contrast is only good to you if the brain can perceive it. Okay. So from our research and win-loss analysis, we know that differentiation around some specific sales behaviors are really, really important. What we are starting to formulate, and I think over time, we're going to figure this out even more as we continue to work together, is what is that tipping point? How much of that contrast in that behavior creates differentiation sufficient enough to say yes, regardless of price. So where does the tipping point towards value over price kind of exist? And what I'm hearing you say is it exists some somewhere in the form of 40% differentiation. 
Is yes, that right? so, yes, exactly right. And as you're reflecting on your own content, then you would have to come up with your own benchmarks for what a 40% could mean to you. Mm. Otherwise, if the, the brain cannot perceive contrast and some options are so close to other options in terms of what they offer, where people claim value, but that value, whatever you're including in it is so close to other people's value and you don't have the 40% difference, it will be very hard for a buyer's brain to perceive that something is indeed derailing from the pattern. Okay. So, so far I've heard things like the 10% message. I've heard design in the slides matters a ton for the differentiation. And I loved, by the way, uh, love the gear wall. That is so cool. Uh, when, when we first got on camera in the, in the, in the pre-brief prior to our, our, our show start, I looked at, I was like, okay, that's awesome. And we talked about that. And later, maybe in another show, we'll talk specifically more about that. And then I heard you also talking about using language that's easier, that, that reduces cog load, cognitive load um, to make it easier. Are there any, any other practical tips or anything else that we should focus on when we're, when we're trying to get ourselves not so focused on the modality, but how we can make the presentations memorable? Yes, let's um, let's reflect on what else we did in that presentation, which performed well across the four modalities. The uh, presenter that we uh, we hired, he maintained a very brisk pace throughout that entire delivery. Uh, the brain can uh, can lose focus easily. It's not that it's not capable of sustaining focus. By the way, I want to debunk a myth that exists there, and I think from a neuroscience perspective, needs to be addressed, which is people advocate a lot that we have shorter attention spans these days. That couldn't be further from the truth. We are capable of paying extremes amount of attention to a, a to a stimulus like what's what's the longest um amount of um hours that you have binge watched on a tv show oh um, this is going to be disclose publicly yeah thank you i was going to say this is super embarrassing for me and uh it's probably about well it's about once a year my wife okay i'm gonna say it out loud my wife and i binge harry potter all the episodes over a weekend that's embarrassing my name is ryan and i have a problem uh, but you know, that it's a lot of hours. It's a lot. It's, embarrassing. it's a lot of hours. And notice how you're mentioning hours. You're not mentioning minutes and uh, you're not mentioning seconds. So it really bothers us from a, a science perspective when we hear articles or we read articles or hear statements like uh, uh, human beings have the attention span of a goldfish. Uh, no, we don't. When you, when you love Harry Potter, how could you? Uh, but a lot of techniques and, and a lot of um, ideas and, and a lot of things have to happen to make those Harry Potter shows that attention grabbing and sustaining. So we know it's possible. Like you, you were in there and I bet you that for hours at a time, you didn't get up to make a sandwich. You were, you were in there. Yeah. So we know the brain is capable. However, we have so many options these days. We can look there. We can look here. We can look in so many directions we always use 100% of our attention. The, the question is, where do you direct it? So for us in that presentation, the person maintained a very brisk pace, like things were happening and they were switching. Even the uh, the slide deck itself, the presentation was seven minutes, but I think we had maybe 13 slides for the seven minutes. So that means you're switching the slides very frequently. Moving, yeah. Not, yes, not only that, but within each slide we had a lot of animations uh, tastefully done. You don't see like things like a jumping or something that is awkward, but something that matches your script and matches a point to the uh, extreme in the sense that you cannot allow the brain to predict what happens next. 
people will look away when they know they or they think they can predict what happens next and you, you, you remove that, then they will stay with you for a while because just like in a Harry Potter show, the most important thing is what happens next. Mm. Okay, so uh, we've added to the list here pace and yes. you used brisk pace, 13 mm -hmm. slides, seven minutes, animations, which again, some of this is surprising or maybe even counterintuitive to what you know common knowledge might be out there. Don't have so many animations. Keep it very, you know, whatever, uh, what you're saying, move, keep attention. Don't allow for people to be able to predict so easily what's going to happen next. Exactly. Because sometimes when you might hear guidelines, let's call them best practices, don't use so many slides, for instance. Well, if you don't use so many slides, that means you're showing the brain a stimulus and you'll, you're staying on that slide again and again and i'm seeing nothing change and it's still the same thing so of course it's almost like an invitation to multitask because if nothing has changed on the screen i'm going to grab my phone really quick and think hmm i can check something really fast because if nothing has happened for the past two minutes surely nothing is going to happen for the next one minute therefore i have this cognitive space to include something else in there i love that idea you invite multitasking you evoke you, you provoke people into doing yes. other things when it's just sitting here like this. So what you're saying is my spastic nature actually could have some value because you never know what I'm going to do next. <laughs> Your style could be successful across the four modalities. And because you practice for that style, by the way, even when you don't show slides, you will still perform well when you call somebody because they're not seeing your stimulus, but they're still hearing that very brisk rhythm and you moving through ideas and building mental pictures in people's minds. And um, that will be successful across uh, a blind medium. Okay. So, so Carmen, rounding this out, is there any, anything else in terms of, you know, after the 10% message, the design rules, the language, making sure it's simple, rolls off the tongue, we've added in the pace of the presentation. Is there anything else? I would add to that list a combination of something that appear, appeals to reason and something that appeals to emotion. When we wrote the script, we were very careful in addition to abstract versus concrete language, like sales quota, abstract, but homeowner, very concrete, to say things like 80% um, of the uh, Excel spreadsheets that deal with conversations have errors in them. So that's something that will appeal to your, your reasoning, your analytical part of the brain. And we also use things like Excel is dead, or these errors are deadly or you have an army of sellers. It's one thing to say you have a group of sellers in your organization versus you have an army of sellers. You see how the emotion is a little bit heavier when you're using the word uh, army, especially given the, uh, the world that uh, we live in. So as you're reflecting on your own script, look also for these ratios of something that is fairly detached and analytical, such as statistics and, uh, and facts. The brain needs those, by the way, do not skimp on them. But every so often, be also very careful to inject just a little bit of a heavier emotion. And it can be a positive one. It can be a negative one, but an emotion nonetheless, because you want to give the brain and body something to react to. Otherwise, on that GSR that I showed you, if we were to have people wearing the GSR device and watch a Harry Potter show, we would see probably 18 peaks per minute. In a business segment, we're lucky if we discover three or four. 
But if your content has a three or four and your competitors does not, already you're up ahead. But you are a choreographer of those emotional reactions that you can ignite in someone and they just have to be deliberate. They just can't happen by chance. So these these peaks, as you put them per minute, what I'm hearing you say, if we're peeling it back, this isn't necessarily just I either have it or I don't. These are skills. What I'm hearing you say, these are skills that can be developed. Is, is that right? Developed from the from the person's perspective that communicates the message. So yes. starts honing on those. It's possible that you will have every so often a buyer that is so detached. I'm sure you probably have fem- family members that are like that. You could show them the most amazing sunset and the most touching story and they just will be unfazed. And you'll have people on the other spectrum, which you'll show them a leaf falling and they will feel like that is the most amazing thing they have seen. They start ever. crying, you know. Yes. All, yeah, yeah. Yes. So yeah, we have some dispositions that are across the spectrum. Sure, that's true. But these are averages. So on average, if you look and become a bit more deliberate about the language that you use and some of these emotion-laden words that you can inject in your sentences, then you have a likely a, a, an increased likelihood of generating more peaks per minute during your sessions. Okay, so let's talk through some uh, let's talk through some of the presenting insights and techniques that you discuss in the study. So presentation uh, insights and techniques, you mean beyond the 10% and the, uh, and the language? Yeah. Like I, I saw in their data insight question, uh, you, you had some like practical applications for kind of the, the process of the delivery of the, of the information. Yes. Yeah, so in um, typically per corporate visions, frameworks, we advocate that when you're approaching somebody with a persuasive message, you first give them some data around a context that people operate in. Then you draw some insights from that data. And then you ask people a provocative question so that they recognize, oh, this is actually very serious to me. I didn't realize that this was so, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Um, For example, uh, just yesterday we were on a call and we were talking about people think that they have a differentiation problem. Uh, And the question could, and you can give some stats around that, but then the provocative question is, is it really a differentiation problem that you're having, or perhaps you're having a messaging problem, perhaps you have a diagnostic problem, perhaps you don't know why you're winning or losing those deals. So see the moment that you ask that provocative question and you're creating a, a, a brief eureka uh, segment, then you can get the brain and body a little bit uh, closer to your to your stimulus. So we definitely took advantage of the uh, the DIQ in that presentation. So so far, if we were to summarize, think about your ten percent message. Think about the ratio between concrete and abstract language. Think about the ratio between analytical versus emotionally laden words. Also think about offering enough data insights and then asking a provocative question. And to wrap it all up, since it always comes back to that 10% message, make sure you come back to that not once, not twice, but at least three times. He came back visually seven times to the same main message that he wanted people to take away through that entire seven minute segment. Repetition is the mother of memory. There is just no secret around it. Repetition is the mother of memory. Okay, so if if we're, we're wrapping up our conversation here, if there was, and I hate this question, but I also kind of love it at the same time. So talk about contrast and conflict. Um, if you had one piece of advice, right? It, that may be your 10% message. If you had one piece of advice to leave our listeners today, what would it be? 
this is a perfect setup because it will have to be related to that 10% message. So think of it this way. Your customers will act in your favor if they remember what you want them to remember. For your customers to do what you want, they have to remember what you want. And to create that memory, you have to be deliberate about it. You cannot leave it to chance because otherwise it will take away something very little and random. And because decisions are social, you want more people to remember the exact same message, not just one person. So the more you create a unified memory, the more likely the decision and the faster the decision. To get there, you have to be deliberate about your 10% message. So make sure that you're very clear around it. Make sure that it doesn't have more than three supporting points. And those supporting points have some cognitive ease. People can roll those points off the tongue without much cognitive effort. This show has been one of the most chalked full, chalked filled, filled, I don't know, organized, concentrated group of practical application for our listeners. This has been an amazing conversation, Carmen. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Ryan, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I feel like this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I totally agree. Uh, Frankly, and listeners, um, just be ready. Hold on, because Carmen will be joining us once a month moving forward. I don't know if that's the exact cadence, but she'll be joining us often. Let's say that. Uh, She'll be joining us often. There is more to come. Tune in. Get ready. Here we go. Thanks again, Carmen. Thank you, Ryan. To read the full study we talked about today on the show, check out the show notes at www.primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And remember, no deal is out of reach. We'll see you next time.